WKBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, board meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The KBOO Board of Directors meets the fourth Monday of the month starting at 6 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. Davey D. hanging out with you. First of all, I want to thank everybody who's been listening to KBOO, KBOO. I appreciate that very, very much. I appreciate all those who have supported our show, Hard Knock Radio. What we want you to do is be an active listener and be a part of this community, to be a part of this radio station, to be a counter to the corporate dictates that often determine programming on big commercial radio. This is your opportunity to uh, hold us accountable. This is your opportunity to replace those big corporate-backed entities that dictate content and let us uh, be dictated by you, the listener. Show your support by going to kboo.fm and clicking the donate button. I'm Margaret Cho, and you're listening to Hard Knock Radio. What up, though? This is Invincible from Detroit to Oakland. Always listening to Hard Knock Radio, news, views, and hip-hop. Yeah. Want to move? This is Pam Africa on Hard Knock Radio, the station of resistance. Down with this rotten-ass system. Stay tuned to Hard Knock Radio. Davey D, Hard Knock Radio, hanging out with you this afternoon. You know, it was just the other day that we saw an article that came out that talked about the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, many people consider it uh, one of the earliest terrorist groups in the United States, uh, had been aggressively uh, recruiting people, and many are returning home from having been recruited and serving time um, in the military and it raised questions as to what that would mean um, we wanted to kind of go back into time uh, because for some people this is like uh, something new and, and a cause for alarm but apparently this has been going on for quite a while and about 30 years ago the gentleman on the phone line with us who's no stranger to our airwaves uh, actually infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan when he was a police officer in Colorado Springs. Doesn't sound too unusual, except this particular officer, or former officer, is black. His skin is chocolate, and he has written a book called Black Klansman that talks about that, and I wanted to get him on the line to, first of all, share some insights about his book and see um, if we should be concerned about some of these revelations that are coming up today. So... Uh, on the phone line with us is Sergeant Ron Stallworth. How you doing, sir? How you doing, Davey? Good, good. So, you know, we had you on a couple of times, and you talked briefly about um, you joining the Klan and um, what that was like and how you were able to do it, and now you finally wrote a book about it. Let's talk a little bit about this, because in the book you go into a lot of details and you bring to light a number of things that um, we should all be paying attention to, um, in particular the formation of militias um, and what that means, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So let's talk about Black Klansmen, what this is about, and uh, how you, as a former uh, peace officer, were able to do um, what you know has been immortalized in a Dave Chappelle skit. Um, maybe he knew about your operation, and maybe he didn't. But let's talk a little bit about it. Well, I don't think Dave Chappelle knew about my uh, operation. Uh, 
fact, I know he didn't. It's just ironic that he came up with uh, his comedy skit and it paralleled what I had done um, at the time Chappelle did his skit. It paralleled what I had done about 25 years earlier, um, except mine was reality. His was uh, comedy. Um, right. As I've told your listeners on previous occasions, uh, uh, in 1978, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, under the uh, auspices of David Duke, the Grand Wizard at the time of uh, the uh, most notable Klan faction down in New Orleans, uh, they were forming a chapter in Colorado Springs where I was a uh, police detective. I was the youngest detective in the history of the Colorado Springs Police Department and the first black detective in the history of that department at the age of uh, 22. At the time this event took place in 1978, I was 25 years old, and uh, right. they. And this uh, is in the they, and this is in the middle of the, this is in the middle of, um, you know, coming off the heels of the Black Power movements and everything. So there's still a lot of energy and a lot of um, conscious raising in terms of you know us as a people coming together, et cetera, et cetera. There was, there was still a lot of that. There was still a little bit of tension in the air and, and, in terms of uh, the police community. There was still a lot of tension, a little bit of tension in terms of the police community as to the nature of uh, uh, what was going on within the black community. Uh, um, and so we were a little bit, we meaning the police community, we were a little bit on edge uh, in terms of uh, events uh, and goings on within the black community. But my job was to stay on top of so-called subversive groups. And as you pointed out in your introduction, the Ku Klux Klan is and has been designated a domestic terrorist group uh, throughout its long history. And, uh, and that history, I might add, goes back to 1869. Uh, they came to strong prominence during the height of the civil rights movement in the early days, uh, back in the, uh, the 1950s uh, and 60s. In particular, right, and um, we, uh, uh, my job was to stay on top of groups like this, and so uh, I was concerned as an intelligence detective with the department. My job was to stay on top of groups like this, and so when I saw that the Ku Klux Klan had put a, a, an advertisement in the uh, classified ad section of uh, one of our newspapers, it simply said Ku Klux Klan for information. There was a PO box address. I answered the address. Um, it was a fluke. I didn't think much would come of it, but I answered the address uh, pretending to be a white racist like they were. And uh, right. within a, I use, and when I say pretending, I used all the buzzwords of hate that they like to use, uh, referring to blacks. Uh, uh, for your listening audience, I used the term N-word, uh, but right. I used the N-word. I used uh, references, uh, derogatory references to Asians to uh, Mexicans, to uh, Jew, Jewish uh, citizens. Uh, uh, you, pick the, you pick the ethnic group I use derogatory terms for. And I sent this letter off to them, and uh, uh, I, I forgot about it. Uh, I made the crucial mistake in that I identified myself by my real name instead of using the undercover names that I went by for uh, undercover purposes. I had two different names. And I, and I mistakenly used my real name, Ron Stallworth, which was uh, dumb of me, but I had a brain cramp that day. And right. uh, I sent the letter off and forgot about it. And uh, within, uh, I, I also gave the undercover phone line that we used uh, to communicate with people. It was an untraceable line at that point, at that time in, in history. And within about a week, I get a phone call at the line, and it's the local clan organizer. That's how he identified himself. In my book, he's identified as Ken O'Dell. That's his real name. He was a sergeant in the uh, U.S. Army stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado, just outside of Colorado Springs. And uh, Ken O'Dell told me he was a local organizer. He said he was recruiting new members for the clan. He got my letter. And he was interested in what I had to say and thought uh, I'd make a good Klansman. And he wanted to know further why I wanted to join. So I took it further and used more buzzwords of hate. I told him my sister, remember he thought I was white. I told him my sister was dating a uh, inward person. And every time he put his filthy black hands in her pure white body, it made me sick to my stomach. And I wanted to do something about that uh, type of thing 
and to prevent it from happening in the future for future generations of uh, white kids. His, right. his response was, you're just the kind of person we're looking for. When can we meet? And at that were point you surprised, time, were, you, were, were you surprised that it was somebody from the Army? Um, you know, here, especially because when we were looking back at the Civil Rights era, um, the army was, you know, used to help integrate. And of course, I guess by, by the time you're doing that, the army was also used to quell um, some of the rebellions that went on in, in the cities after the death of King and others. But with that said, you know, one would think that there would be more of a selection process as to who would get in. But this was a sergeant in the U.S. Army. I wasn't surprised in the sense that I wasn't expecting uh, anything in particular. I wasn't expecting the Army. I wasn't expecting anybody. So the fact that it turned out to be a GI did not really surprise me because I had no expectations of anything. Uh, when I found out it was a soldier, uh, I perked up because the fact that uh, there was Klansmen involved in the Army, uh, that made me perk up just a little bit more and it aroused my interest just a little bit more. So at that point in time, I became even more interested in what, uh, I realized this was not a fluke, that this had some uh, some legs to it, and uh, I was gonna run with it as far as I could. Uh, again, the Ku Klux Klan is a domestic terrorist group. Now I find out that I got a GI involved in the Klan. Um, the GI, uh, uh, soldiers, military personnel, they take oaths when they uh, join the service. They take oaths to uphold the Constitution of the United States to protect, defend the flag and our country. So now I'm I'm extremely concerned and and, and uh, interested in what's going on. Um, now, when the, now in the book you talk about that while you were interested that your immediate supervisor wasn't and you had to go over their head, um, and even at the conclusion of your operation. Um, you talk about how they wanted to, like, you know, get rid of all those files. Um, what was that about? You know, with with this particular uh, sergeant, was it was it was it concern that you know that you were investigating the clan, or was it just a person personality thing, or what was the story behind that? Yeah, it wasn't my immediate supervisor. It was the lieutenant in charge of the narcotics division and his sergeant both of whom I had worked for a year earlier and who had, uh, we had had a falling out, a personality clash. Uh, at that point in time, they had kicked me out of narcotics a year earlier and I had uh, gotten back into the detective division. They had kicked me out of narcotics, put me back in uniform, which they knew I didn't want to be in. And uh, I had managed to get myself back into the detective division in the intelligence section and they didn't like that. And uh, when uh, obviously when I had to meet uh, this Klansman, uh, we had a phone conversation. I set up a meeting with him. Obviously, being black, I couldn't meet him. So I had to have a white person pose as me. And I described the white officer who matched my height, my description in the book. He's referred to as Chuck. Um, right. I had to have somebody pose as me for the meeting. And uh, that's how we pulled this investigation off. I did most of the talking on the phone, probably 90% of it on the phone. And uh, when it came time for face-to-face -face meetings, I would send Chuck in posing as me. Um, they didn't pick up. They didn't pick up on the difference in voices or anything like that, or speech patterns, anything like that. During the entire seven months of the undercover phase of this investigation, I was only challenged once regarding the difference in my voice versus Chuck's. Uh, Chuck had gone to a meeting that I had set up at the house of uh, Ken, and uh, he left the meeting, and when he returned, Chuck, had, Chuck being a narcotics officer, had drug deals he had to go uh, deal with, and when he uh, left the meeting to go do his regular uh, duty work, um, I had something that I wanted to d discuss further with Ken, so I waited about a half hour, and then I picked the phone up and called Ken at home. And... Uh, during the course of the conversation, Ken said, your voice sounds funny, what's the, what's the matter? You don't sound like yourself. So I coughed and I pretended like I had a sinus uh, infection and he said, oh, I get those all the time. He said, here's what you need to do to fix that and he proceeded to prescribe a remedy for me 
and that's the only time I was ever challenged regarding my, the difference in my voice versus, versus Chuck's. Um, right. And the key, the key to that was that he was so convinced of my undercover identity based on uh, the conversations I had been having with him. He was so secure in who I had pretended to be that uh, the fact that he now was suspicious of me in that brief moment, he was not going to let his suspicions override uh, the confidence he had already laid on me. Uh, I had him. In other words, I had him hooked, and um, even his own suspicions weren't going to be aroused. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with former police sergeant Ron Stallworth about his book Black Klansman. He's talking about. Uh, you know, the uh, full details of an undercover, historic undercover operation that he did, um, where he was able to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan and, uh, and what it took and what was going on. Um, in the book, um, you talk about some very prominent people uh, at that particular time who were members of the Klan. You talk about a fireman. Um, you also talk about this uh, posse. Uh, that was, you know, that was really a peacetime posse, but actually a uh, militia group and their whole situation and them merging with the Ku Klux Klan. Um, I found that to be pretty interesting. Also, what you lay out in the book, which I think uh, people would find fascinating, um, is how widespread and how far into uh, public life the Klan was. I'm talking about government public life. Um, when you were doing research, um, you were talking about that they were senators and governors and mayors of all these cities. Um, so th this was an organization, terrorist or not, had strong holds um, in society for very long periods of time. So let's talk about some of these prominent people, including the, the fireman who was pretty open that he was a Klansman. Well, the fireman, uh, his name was Fred Wilkins. Fred was a fireman in Lakewood, Colorado. Lakewood is a suburb of Denver. Uh, he was a uh, well-known uh, individual. He was in the press constantly preaching his uh, Klan nonsense, and he was a pain in the, in, in the butt, so to speak, for Lakewood City officials, but they could do nothing about it because he had a, uh, uh, a very clean record in terms of his uh, uh, civil service job as a fireman. Um, he was exemplary as a fireman and therefore uh, all they could do was uh, chastise him verbally but they could do nothing about him uh, in terms of his uh, clan activities and uh, that was the extent of that but uh, Fred uh, was the uh, Grand Dragon which is a state leader for the Colorado Ku Klux Klan uh, I held conversations with Fred on the phone quite a bit uh, he even asked me to be his public relations uh, spokesperson, uh, which I never did, but he asked me to uh, set up uh, public uh, relations uh, meetings uh, with the media in Colorado Springs. Uh, he came to trust me and trust my judgment. Uh, again, I had him hooked on the phone with uh, my undercover role, um, uh, along with the local organizer, Ken O'Dell. Uh, but Fred... Um, Fred was an interesting individual. Uh, you mentioned the posse, uh, peacetime posse. The posse comitatus was not a peacetime posse. That's what they referred to themselves. They were just a bunch of local yokels who called themselves a posse in support of the sheriff. The posse comitatus is a ultra right wing uh, 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 hate group. Um, they are a they were the forerunners of the uh, groups that later became the militias in the late 80s and, and early 90s. Uh, the Posse Comitatus basically believe in, in uh, local government only, and the local government they believe in is at the county level. They don't believe in any form of gov government beyond the county level. So therefore, they do not recognize federal government, they do not recognize city government, only the county sheriff level, and if the sheriff does not abide by what they feel is right, then they feel like they have the authority to take down the sheriff. And uh, the posse comitatus was very strong in Colorado Springs. I used to personally have dealings with posse comitatus members where uh, I would stop them for a speeding violation, for example, in our main street and request a license and registration. They would refuse to provide me with that. 
uh, telling me that I had no authority over them because uh, I was not his county sheriff's deputy. Therefore, they did not have to provide me with a license and registration, and they did not have to uh, obey any orders or directives that I gave them. And uh, we encountered posse comitatus members all the time that approached us that way. I won't get into uh, uh, with it with your listeners as to what I was, how I responded and how other officers responded to the posse members. But the bottom line is they obeyed our orders and uh, ended up locked up in jail uh, one way or the other. With the, with the Klan merging with uh, the posse comitatus, um, what was that like and, and how concerning, how, how, how concerned were, were people around that? Well, and and I'm asking this. I'm asking this in the backdrop because what we're talking about too is at this time the Klan had taken on a new persona, and perhaps you can elaborate on that before even answering the question, which was the Klan was basically putting away their hoods and becoming more media savvy and becoming a friendly um, type of uh, entity, even though they harbored a lot of this sort of uh, 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 racial hatred. The irony to the Klan that I was dealing with, the David Duke faction of the Klan, was that David Duke uh, was uh, referred to by the press as the new face of the Ku Klux Klan. He never wore a hood in public, only in private ceremonial purposes. He um, never used the N-word in public. However, in private conversations with David Duke, he and I threw the N-word around like a baseball. Uh, So we chatted uh, and threw the N-word around all the time. Uh, in fact, if your listeners are, uh, remember the old uh, TV show Roots about uh, Alex Haley, uh, the late Alex Haley finding his roots, uh, tracing his roots back to Africa, Duke liked to joke that it was called Weeds. That's how he referred to this TV show. He referred to it as Weeds. And he always uh, used it as a punchline in some of his talks. Um, wow. But uh, uh, he got a kick out of that and uh, would talk to me on the phone about uh, the TV show Weeds and uh, laugh about it and throw the N-word around, and, and we both would get uh, good chuckles out of that. Remember, I was playing a role. Uh, undercover right. is nothing acting. So I, w- I was acting with him and playing, playing the white racist role with him. And uh, Duke was the new face of the Klan in that he was very articulate, wore a three-piece suit, uh, very well-groomed, he was the kind of gentleman, if you will, and I use the term loosely, but he was the kind of gentleman who a, a mother would want their daughter to come home with uh, and take to the prom. Uh, that's how he presented himself. He was a hell of a debater, held a master's degree in political science from Louisiana State University, and uh, he was uh, not your stereotypical Klansman like everybody thinks in terms of uh, the image you see portrayed in, in movies and TV shows as such. So one of the uh, angles that David Duke was uh, pushing at that time was to avoid confrontations in public, avoid using the N-word, don't wear your hood in public if you have to, and get politically involved. He even cited, and and, uh, Fred Wilkins, the uh, fireman, the, the Colorado Grand Dragon, as well as Ken O'Dell, the local organizer who I initiated this investigation with, they even cited Dr. King and the uh, um, civil rights movement, the angle that they were taking, and that register more white people who think the way we think, register them to vote so we could impact the political process and change the movement the way we want it to be changed. They were citing Dr. King's efforts for their political right. purpose. So this was the angle that they were going at. They were trying to form a new political uh, movement via the ballot box. Do you think that ever took wind when we look at some of the racial animosity that we see today? And again, I I started off by talking about the report that just came out about the military being uh, infiltrated and, you know, all these Klan men are now returning home, having military training, having served three and four terms. Um, Is, you know, what's your thoughts about that? in 2014. Um, one would think that with these investigations that with quote-unquote enlightened times, things would have changed, but in many ways they seem like they've gotten worse. 
I'm as concerned about the Klan, uh, Klansmen in the military as I am concerned about street gang members in the military who have returned home and now have their tactical training to return to the hood and go about their uh, uh, gang activities fighting for the blue and the red and, and whatever other color scheme they're claiming. Um, it's, a, it's a frightening prospect, and yet it's happening all the time and has been happening. Um, so I, I, hold, uh, I hold both of those uh, uh, issues. Uh, uh, I have deep concern for both of those issues, uh, be they black or white. Well, one of the things that we, we know over the years is that as these white supremacist groups have emerged, that, you know, early on the formation of gangs, black gangs in particular, was to deal with them. And even when you look at some of the military stuff uh, that, you know, we're talking about the infiltration of the Klan in the military when you first investigated them. You know, you didn't have that situation. Uh, people posseed up until much later, and it was usually in response. Um, that leads to the question of why weren't these groups ever really eradicated, um, not to equate the street gang um, with the Klansmen, because the Klan gang has been around for a very long time. And as you pointed out in your, your book, um, there were periods in history where you know, they were the mayors and senators and what have you. You don't have a crip in the blood that's the senator or the mayor of a city. Um, but you did with Klan's people. And even now, today, I'm looking at an article um, that's uh, that has a sheriff deputy um, in L.A. that's talking about how that department has been overrun with Klan members. And, and that's, you know, raising a, a fuss now. So with that institution... Um, terrorist institution, how do we deal with that? And, and to what extent um, do you feel that from the time that you were investigating them to now, um, under somebody who had this charismatic leadership like a Duke, um, how widespread do you think that mission that he undertook was able to um, really uh, 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 unfold? Uh, well, let's approach it. Let's, let's approach that question from this angle, David. Uh, in terms of the street gang aspect of it, ironically, a lot of street gangs, uh, black street gangs, formed for uh, idealistic reasons. I, I could take that even further and say that a lot of gangs, period, including the Italian mafia, they formed for idealistic reasons for uh, uh, to preserve the cause of their particular ethnic group. Uh, right. They formed. They form for noble purposes, in other words. The problem with them is that even though they form for noble purposes, they started preying on their own people and committing crimes against their own people, and thus uh, in committing crimes against their own people, they started preying on their own people and uh, exploiting their own people. That's where the negativity comes in where uh, ethnic street gangs are concerned. The Klan, on the other hand, had one purpose and one purpose in mind only, and that was to exploit the minority group in which they had issues with, and in the history of the Klan, that uh, minority group always began with blacks, Jews, uh, in the early uh, 20th century, Catholics were included, and uh, if you fast forward into um, uh, the 20th century, it, they later included whatever minority group uh, came along over time. Uh, uh, the Irish Americans uh, fast forward into the uh, uh, post-Vietnam era and when we started accepting Vietnamese refugees they started trying to exploit them because there were so many of them especially down in the uh, Texas Gulf area so the Ku Klux Klan has always been about exploiting minority groups never about trying to uh, help uh, anybody and it's always been about promoting the white race uh, in terms of the history of the Ku Klux Klan and its exploitation, uh, the history of the Klan, uh, in my book, I point out that during, uh, in terms of Colorado, where I worked, during the 1920s, early 30s, uh, the Ku Klux Klan dominated Colorado politics. When uh, I talk about David Duke wanting to change the Klan into a political party, uh, he was basically going backwards in time. The Klan in right. the 20s and 30s in Colorado, they dominated the, the uh, political agenda in Colorado. And ironically, 
I would point out to your leader, your your listeners, the Ku Klux Klan has always traditionally been sympathetic to the Republican Party, the conservative agenda of our of our nation. Uh, in the twenties, the Ku Klux Klan was uh, uh, dominated Republican Party politics in Colorado. Uh, they held the governor's office. They held the two state, uh, I mean, the uh, entire state legislative body. They controlled the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, congressional delegation. They controlled the Denver Police Department in terms of the chief. Uh, he was important. He, he, in fact, was appointed or uh, was named by the uh, Grand Wizard of the Klan and thus appointed chief by the uh, mayor who was appointed or who got the support of the Klan. That mayor later became governor. Your listeners uh, may not know this, but in my book I point out that uh, that mayor later became governor. His name was uh, Benjamin Stapleton. Uh, they right. are familiar with Wayne Stapleton because they used to fly into Stapleton Airport before it was torn down and became uh, Denver International Airport. But they were flying wow. into an airport that honored a uh, uh, Ku Klux Klansman. Um, wow. But during that period of time, the Klan dominated Colorado politics. They dominated it so much it was probably the most dominated Klan uh, uh, state outside of the Deep South. And it was dominated so much that uh, reporters stopped uh, uh, spelling it with a C and started spelling it with a capital K. Wow. If you just tune in, that's the voice of Sergeant Ron Stallworth talking about his book, Black Klansman. He's an African-American man who was able to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan. Um, fascinating story. And, you know, we, we have talked to you before about it, but now you have the book. Um, you know, we're running out of time, but, you know, one of the highlights of that book was that as you were an undercover member, in your official capacity where you went undercover, you were assigned to bodyguard David Duke when he came to Colorado, and that caused some problems when you took pictures with him um, when he didn't want to have that happen, and you almost wound up arresting him. Um, what was that like? And he and I'm surprised he didn't catch your voice then, or did you talk to him in your capacity as a uh, as an official uniformed officer who who had to bodyguard him when he came to Colorado? Yes, we were getting death threats against David Duke, and my chief on the morning he arrived in town for a publicity blitz, my chief assigned me uh, to be his bodyguard. Part of my capacity as an intelligence officer, one of the, our duties was VIP protection. Uh, we routinely uh, bodyguarded the uh, VIPs, uh, the president, vice president, people like that. And my chief gave David Duke VIP status for the simple reason that uh, because of his capacity as the Grand Wizard and the death threats he was given, my chief did not want anything to happen to him in, in the city. So he gave him VIP uh, uh, cl classification and told me uh, to be his bodyguard while he was in town for about four hours, five hours or so. And even though I argued against it based on the investigation, uh, Chuck, the white Ron Star Wars was uh, with him along with another undercover officer I had gotten placed into the group. Uh, but the chief said, uh, insisted I, I be there as his bodyguard. So I went to the restaurant where they were hosting this meeting. There was about 20 Klansmen. Half of them had their wives present. This was an important event for this group. It would be like us attending a, a dinner with Obama and Mrs. Obama uh, in their minds. And uh, I went to him. I introduced myself to him. I shook his hand. Uh, uh, he gave me the client handshake. He didn't know that I recognized it as such, but he gave me the client handshake. And uh, I told him I did not agree with his politics and his uh, philosophy, but I would do my professional best to ensure his safety while he was in my city. He thanked but me. He didn't, but he didn't, he, didn't catch, he, didn't, he didn't recognize your voice from all the conversations on the phone? I'll take that even further, Davey. Standing next to him was Fred Wilkins, the Colorado Grand Dragon, the fireman, and standing next to him was Ken O'Dell, the local organizer, they all three were standing right next to each other when I was talking to David Duke. And uh, no, none of them caught my voice. That, wow. that, was, that was my moment of apprehension, why I didn't want to be in this position in the first place, because I knew I would have to communicate with them. But uh, I went there, and uh, my, my identity, my undercover role, everything was uh, secure. 
I had them so convinced of my role as a uh, white racist that they never once picked up on the fact that they were talking to the guy who was talking to them on the phone, pretending to be one of them. They never picked up on it. And, and that's, that's the irony to this investigation. Uh, they they, no, they were making go, go ahead. You were going to say? David Duke, his Grand Dragon, and the local chapter leader were all made complete fools of by a black man who they routinely, in their uh, theoretical uh, assessment of blacks and minorities, they, they routinely referred to us as apes, having the mentality of apes. I routinely, this ape, so to speak, routinely made a fool of them, uh, and uh, that's the irony to this whole thing. Uh, they weren't as smart as they thought they were. We're talking with Ron Starworth. As we wrap up, um, in the book, you know, shortly after, you know, the investigation ends, uh, what was the conclusion and why did they, why were you ordered to destroy those papers? You kept them anyway, um, which is the basis for the book. So you were able to see the documents and all that. But why did they, um, why did they not, why did they want to kind of erase that from history? My chief was fairly new to the job. I think he'd been in a chief for two years. He had pre previously been the lieutenant in charge of the public relations department. He was very public relations conscious. And the Ku Klux Klan, the local chapter leader, kept pushing, believe it or not, he wanted Ron Stallworth to assume leadership of the Colorado Springs chapter of the KKK because in his assessment, Ron Stallworth was a, quote, loyal and dedicated Klansman and he, as a military man, had to leave. Uh, he was getting out of the Army, and he wanted a local person, a local uh, Colorado Springs resident, to assume leadership to maintain a sense of stability. And he kept pushing for Ron Stallworth to become his uh, successor, in spite of my uh, protestations and, and in spite of Chuck, the white Ron Stallworth, telling him the same. And uh, uh, every time I tried to... Uh, say no he kept insisting Chuck would say no he kept insisting so finally I went to the chief and said chief this guy is insisting and he won't take no for an answer he wants Ron Stallworth to become the leader of the KKK and the chief said I want you to shut the investigation down now I want you to shut the undercover phone line down change the P.O. box number don't answer any more phone calls don't go to any more meetings I want Ron Stallworth Black Klansman to disappear and that's how the investigation ended. And uh, the chief then said, I want you to destroy all files. Uh, I don't want any record or any reference to us having undercover cops into the Klan. This was an intelligence investigation, not a criminal investigation. So there was no arrest made. Uh, we were gathering information. Hopefully that would lead to an arrest. Uh, they were talking about bombing uh, gay bars. They were talking about stealing uh, automatic weapons from Fort Carson. Um, they were talking about uniting with other uh, right-wing racist uh, hate groups in Colorado. Uh, this is what we were hoping to accomplish was following this trail. Uh, and then what, why I wanted the investigation to go on was I had a pathway, if you will, to if I had been able to assume the leadership, by I, I meant Chuck and I, if I had been able to assume the leadership of the Colorado Springs chapter, we could have penetrated the Colorado hate movement to a degree that nobody had ever penetrated before in law enforcement. And there's no telling how far up the chain food chain we could have gone. Um, and I argued with my chief, but he was insistent that the investigation shut down and that the files be destroyed because he was worried about the public finding out that we had KK, uh, officers undercover into the KK. So when he insisted that the files be destroyed, I uh, saluted, came back to my office angrily, along with my sergeant, who disagreed with him. And uh, in the presence of my sergeant, I shredded one report here, one report there. And when the sergeant left the office and I was left alone, I grabbed the files and I walked out of the office with those files and I've had them with me for the past 35 years. And that's the basis of which I wrote my book. They come to... I wrote that book directly from the police files, uh, uh, and uh, I could have lost my job, lost my career if that had been discovered, and it's a decision I've never regretted. Ron Starworth, it's a pleasure talking with you. Um, the name yes. of the book, Black Klansman, 
Uh, and I like to look out for it. They can be they can be purchased at Amazon.com. There you have it. We're gonna take a break here on Hard Knock Radio. We'll be right back. See, unlike America would have us believe, the greatest problem confronting this country today is not pollution and bad breath. It's black people. It's black people. See, that's just one of the big lies that America tells you and that you go for because you chumps. You go for it. One of the lies that we tell ourselves is that we're making progress. But here is shares empty. We're not making progress. We tend to equate progress with concessions. We can no longer make that mistake. Yeah, this is Brothers Keeper from Memphis, Tennessee. What's going on? What's going on? And we always listening to Brother David D on Hard Knock Radio. Yeah, yeah. Yes, the revolution will not be televised. It is Hard Knock Radio. David D hanging out with you this afternoon. And as our eyes and ears continue to be focused on what is taking place, the massacre, the genocide in Gaza, many are coming to the conclusion that Israel is fighting this on several fronts. First, there is the uh, what is taking place on the ground um, with troops massacring people, bombs being dropped, that sort of thing. But we also see the oppression and repression taking place in other arenas, in particular the political, as well as the social, and even in the entertainment uh, arenas where anybody who speaks out against Israel is considered anti-Semitic, or they are uh, demonized, or they're made to fear that they won't have employment, or they'll be blacklisted. Somebody who's covering this and getting ready to put out an explosive column tomorrow for the Black Agenda Report is Bruce Dixon. Bruce, how are you? I'm doing better than a whole lot of folks, baby. How about yourself? Good. You um, are talking about this silencing that goes on with respect to anybody speaking out um, about what is going on, the atrocities in Gaza, and if they don't uh, uh, carry the party line, then there's fear of uh, some sort of retribution. But you really bring a lot of heat to the black uh, black political leaders who you say are complicit in this and have, um, in, in many ways, literally sold their souls. Can you talk about what you're unearthing in your column? Well, sometimes, Davey, uh, sometimes the silence is the loudest noise in the room. And, you know, what we've been treated to, what black people have been treated to, is the deafening silence of our so-called black leadership on what's happening uh, in Palestine, in Israel-Palestine right now. Um, as of uh, Tuesday morning, uh, Democracy Now! says that we've got over 600 dead in Gaza and 25 or 30 Israeli uh, dead. And, uh, you know, that's significant. All this is happening, uh, all this is happening on the dime of the U.S. taxpayers, and uh, the U.S. is the principal financier and armorer of Israel. And not only is our black political class silent on on the the massacre that's underway uh, now um, and on the occupation in general, but uh, our black misleadership class is silent on the fact that it, Israel is an ethnocracy. By what do I mean by an ethnocracy? An ethnocracy is uh, a society where a certain group of people, based on their ethnicity, have privileges over every other group of people. And given the fact that our blackness leadership class celebrates its ties to the freedom movement and the uh, heritage of Dr. King and all the freedom fighters that we generated uh, over the last several generations, it's particularly incongruous that um, they, with their silence and sometimes with their active spoken words and acts, um, seem to support exactly the opposite of that uh, in Israel-Palestine. Um, and it seems that they um, are, and even if George Bush and Dick Cheney were still president and vice president, a few of them might actually speak out and remind us of the humanity of the Palestinian people. And, you know, but uh, with a Democrat in the White House and a black Democrat at that, they're showing who their real masters are, and they're absolutely silent. And that silence is deafening. I started off by saying that there is a battle being front on many, many uh, levels. 
And I made I alluded to the fact that there is a political and sometimes a social and economic price to be paid if you speak out against Israel. Many people at this station have been labeled anti-Semitic if you're pro-Palestinian. We've seen uh, artists like Rihanna and sports figure Dwight Howard uh, being pressured to take back their tweets where they said free Palestine. We've seen others uh, remain Even silent. Even Studemeyer, who, who identifies as a Jew himself. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, so. so we've seen others, you know, uh, uh, be very careful about how they speak because they feel they fear that there would be consequence. And we know that uh, Cynthia McKinney, who spoke out in favor of the Palestinians, was uh, politically challenged um, with a lot of money coming in from all over the world and uh, in, into her opponent's coffers who would take a pro-Israel stance versus a pro-Palestinian stance. With that type of reality, should we expect those who are elected officials to uh, not be silent? Or is there something else going on? Well, what we should demand is for leaders to lead. If our black elected officials and our black political class and our black preachers and our black leading business people um, are leaders, then why aren't they leading on this? Why are they following? And what are they following? Um, we should really take the reins out of their hands and, and be participating as a people and as uh, communities in the BDS movement, the global movement to boycott, to divest from, and to sanction uh, the, Israel, the apartheid Israeli state. And it is an apartheid state. And that's what makes the silence of black leadership so odious that they celebrate their victory over apartheid in South Africa and their victory over Jim Crow apartheid on this continent, but um, they are um, speechless when it comes to uh, apartheid backed by U.S. dollars in Israel-Palestine. Um, the most they'll do is talk about a two-state solution, but a two-state solution is uh, obviously impossible and impractical. There is only one state. And the question now is going to be, will that be a state for all the people who live there, or will it be a state just for one ethnicity? And our black leadership need to have a stand on that. And if they're not going to have a stand on it, then we need to stand on it. We had a former political prisoner and Black Panther BLA member, Daruba bin Wahad, on yesterday, and he was talking about uh, the black uh, freedom movement had always supported and had strong ties with Palestinians. And, you know, he talked about folks who went over, supported, et cetera, et cetera. What has happened over the years that we see this shift from being actively supporting to this silence? Is it a payoff? Is it the fear? Again, I come back to that question. Or is it, you know, ideology changing? Have people uh, in, in positions of influence and power, are they just more conservative now? It it is a profound ideological change on the part of uh, the people who we imagine to be our leaders. Um, the people who we imagine to be our leaders um, are really more concerned with their next boat payment and their next condo payment. They're more concerned with um, they're more concerned with their own careers than they are with right and wrong. Um, the people who ran the freedom movement back 45 years ago were not especially concerned about whether they were going to get tenure or not. They were not exactly concerned about their next boat payment, okay, or their next condo payment. So uh, they were not operating under the kinds of constraints that uh, people like Al Sharpton are operating under, that people like uh, Rainbow Push and the NAACP. Did you know, I'm sure you knew, but did your listeners know that the NAACP held its 2014 annual convention in Las Vegas and just wrapped up uh, on Sunday? They had a four-day convention while the troops were massing outside Gaza and while the bombs were raining. And you did not hear one word from the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Now, the Palestinians in Palestine supported our struggle. They supported our struggle, and they looked to us for the longest, um, you know, for support and for um, examples of, of what they might do and, and how they might do it and examples of standing up to injustice and to empire. And um, the way our leadership is, is repaying them is shameful. 
You should hang our heads in shame. You really should. And the NAACP should hang its heads in shame. Um, yesterday was Monday. Have you heard Moral Monday make a statement about uh, the situation in Gaza, about occupation? You will never hear Moral Monday say this, because Moral, or at least I don't think you will, because Moral Monday only brands as immoral things that Republicans do. Moral Monday doesn't believe that Democrats can be immoral and never criticizes anything Democrats do. It's not just Gaza. Moral Monday doesn't criticize gentrification. Moral Monday doesn't criticize the war budget. Um, you know, so, so um, this is the state of black leadership that we have. It's really subservient to um, the donors, to our large organizations, and to uh, the Democratic administration in the White House. My last question, and I, I want to remind people, your column that will be focusing on this will be out tomorrow on blackagendareport.com, and they could uh, read uh, your breakdown of this. Um, I know with 30 seconds or less, I, I can't help but make the connection to this silence with the type of, of silence and complicity we found with many of these black elected officials who sided with the telecom companies um, when millions of people have been uh, demanding that we protect net neutrality, uh, this group of people, more than any other group in Congress, has supported the telecom. So do you make a connection to that? Is this a, a pay-for-play type of uh, leadership we have now, or just something it's, else going it's on? Exact, that's exactly what it was. The uh, last day of uh, the, the last originally scheduled day of comments, the NAACP um, issued a statement against network neutrality and uh, on behalf of the telecoms uh, uh, ability to divide up the internet like it's cable TV and, and erect toll booths everywhere. So this is the kind of black leadership we have. So that ought to tell you it's really time for something new. Bruce Dixon, thank you so much. We'll look out for the Black Agenda Report column. Um, Bruce, of course, and Glenn Ford, his partner, are uh, usually heard on our airwaves with their commentary. It's good to have you live this afternoon. Thanks for inviting me, Davey. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back.
like you to meet a friend of ours who goes by the name of Killer Joe. Picture a so-called hippie or hip cat standing on a corner in a neatly pressed, double-breasted, form-fitting pinstripe suit, a pair of pointed-toed shoes with bold white stitches around the soles, a black shirt, long white tie, a black pencil mustache, and of course, a very wide-brimmed black felt hat. Killer Joe always has a pocket full of loot, but only the kind that jingles. You see, he likes to play the horses. He is most certainly a ladies' man. As a matter of fact, he is always willing to accept cash contributions from them for any cause, namely his own. The most important thing about Killer Joe that you have to know is that he's very much against manual labor. Killer Joe. <laughs> KBOO Portland. In the 1980s, Portland, Oregon was a sleepy city that largely existed outside of the national spotlight. Downtown Portland cleared out after 5 p.m. and city buses rolled through quiet streets populated by hobos, punks, drunks, drug dealers, and street kids. Some of these kids